This is Celluloid Jelly, a podcast featuring a couple of ex-video store guys who still just love talking about movies. I'm CJ Talbot, and joining me as always will be Cesar Alejandro from Filmsmash.com. This episode features Wes Craven's 1984, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Happy Halloween. All right, we're back. How are you, Caesar? I'm doing all right, CJ. What's going on with you? Uh, not a whole lot. Um, yeah, not a whole lot at all. <laughs> Just <laughs> a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of work and running around. Um, you know, Chelsea's actually going to be um, away for a few weekends, so. Uh, she's going away for a wedding in Ohio this weekend, and then she's going back to Baltimore for a weekend, and then, I don't know, then they're going to San Francisco for a weekend, and, uh, you know, so getting getting prepared and, and, you know, doing that as well as, you know, some of the other things that are going on, and uh, just keeping me busy, you know how it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's that time of the year, everyone has so much stuff to get taken care of before, uh, the new year starts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you, we were talking a little bit off air about how Comic Con went, um, Baltimore Comic Con. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do, did you have any uh, any good experiences? See any great costumes? Uh, well, you know, I was only there for one day, working for the shop. Um, it's it's always fun. I never find that working at a convention, whether it's you know. From when, when I used to do it for the shop, for the video store, or or the comic shop, um, I never felt that it's really like work. There's an energy that exists through conventions when people are passionate about something that you're passionate about. Um, it was tiring, long hours, and uh, the aftermath. Uh, once everything was said and done, uh, it tends to take its toll on your body like all at once. But it's it's always a fun experience. I didn't actually get too much time to wander around. Um, but I did see a number of uh, friends and seeing people you don't get a chance to see uh, in person typically is always pretty pretty great. Um, our previous guest, Jason Swoboda, was there. Uh, good movie fan, uh, Bunky. Uh, he was there. He's always uh, been a pretty big comic guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, amongst other people. So I, I think probably my best experience during a convention was talking to those two. And I know... At least Bunky listens to listens to the show regularly. Jason Svoboda, he's a busy guy though. So, but if uh, either you guys hear it, you know, thanks for making the time for me at the Baltimore Comic Con. That's great. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I need to catch up with Gene, uh, aka Bunky, uh, definitely. And uh, Jason, yeah, he's super busy. You know, he's uh, he's working on his comic book God Mode. So if you guys can pick that up. Um, and he's got a, a new podcast called Heroic Nonsense. So you guys, maybe we'll link link that in the show notes so people can find that. Uh, yep. Jason's a, Jason's an entertaining guy. We love him. Uh, we wish him well, and hopefully we'll get him back on our show uh, sometime soon. And yeah, we'll find something tailor made for him. Well, uh, you know, um, next month is November, and typically, you know, uh, noiristas such as myself like to celebrate film noir that month. And Jason is a huge, huge fan of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. And I was thinking about possibly offering that up as a suggestion for next month. So maybe we can convince him to come on to discuss that movie. Who knows? 
So no promises, but that's it's in the pipeline. Maybe who knows? Yeah, these are our machinations, Jason. You'll be aware of them if you listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so if you send me a message and say yes, we'll do it. And if you don't send me a message, we'll know that you don't actually love us as much as you say you do. Yeah, and then I'll stuff us into your podcast, Jason. <laughs> cool. Well, Cesar, what have you been watching lately? Do you have any recommendations before we get to our discussion of A Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, well, I do have a recommendation. Um, it's the film that's probably become my favorite film of the year, uh, and that oh. is uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. I knew what it was before you said it. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen this yet, so no spoilers. Has it made it out to um, a theater in your area? It's kind of platforming out currently. It's playing in L.A., but things have been nuts, and, and we just haven't seen a lot of movies recently. And to be honest, you know, after you're done talking about Parasite, um, you know, I'm not going to have a whole lot to talk about because other than A Nightmare on Elm Street, in the last two weeks, I think I've watched a total of like three movies. I'm like way behind. Oh, well, that's okay. Um, well, Parasite, of course, is uh, a Korean director, Bong Joon, Ho's uh, latest film. Uh, people may know him from uh, his Western films Snowpiercer and uh, Okja, which is a Netflix film, Netflix original, yeah. uh, in the United States anyway. Uh, the movie is centered around uh, a family of maybe not poverty-stricken, but they're definitely not well-off um, like grifters who somehow inundate themselves into this wealthy family. They play roles such as tutors, a housekeeper, a driver, and in the process, um, kind of enter this wealthy family's like cavernous home um, in order to enjoy, I guess, the, the benefits of the association. Okay. Um, in doing so, they discover that there's a secret that exists within this house um, that threatens to destroy, you know, both families. Um, to talk more about the plot would be a great disservice because I think one of the benefits of watching that film is learning about exactly what each character is about. Um, the director who also wrote the film has great ability in kind of revealing layers and building tension. And the movie itself, we've talked about how Korean films in the past do a genre bending technique in, in many, uh, many movies. But I think this director, director Bong, he's one of the best, one of the best in the world at doing this. Um, and, uh, well, like I said, the movie's about discovery, so I really don't want to talk too much about it. Stuff is to say that performances are great. It's absolutely beautifully shot. Dialogue is, like, spot on. It's funny. It's creepy. It's uh, shocking. Um, but I think that if you've heard any buzz about the film, you're still not going to know what to expect. Okay. But All right. That's, yeah, that's good. I can't, I can't recommend this film enough, though. So there's still uh, two months left in the year, but I don't see many films coming close to touching this for my best of the year. Yeah, it's it's been getting some pretty great buzz. Um, I haven't read any reviews or anything, but, you know, whenever I'm on a movie site or, or checking out um, – you know, like box office and stuff, you know, I see it, it had some really great box office, uh, like per screen averages. Um, so people are really going and, and finding it and, uh, you know, everybody seems to love it. So, and I know, um, uh, you went and saw it with Joe, right? I, I Joe really liked it too, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. He's uh notoriously kind of tough to please. <laughs> 
certainly harder on films than I am, I think. <laughs> Putting it mildly, but yes, so... Uh... You know, I, to be honest, I think that's that's one of the one of the reasons why I enjoy talking movies with him so much is is because uh, we often have that that sort of like I don't know if I'd call it friction, but like between his tastes and and mine and and even though I wouldn't say I have the most mainstream taste compared to him, I have much more mainstream taste. <laughs> um, I just think I just think you and I are probably a little bit more um, level-headed. Um, not, that's not to say that Joe's like too passionate about movies. I think um, when you and I, maybe that's why rapport tends to work. You and I, when we discuss a film, we tend to see where a film will lie ten years down the line as well, down down the road as well. Yeah. So a, a lot of films, you know, you may not think they're you and i might not think are great but we know ultimately they're kind of harmless movies joe joe can kind of like eviscerate a film yeah um, well you know and it's not not just right off the bat not not just joe, joe's not here to defend himself so <laughs> but there I'll ask, him, I'll ask him about it today We're there, supposed to, there supposed are to watch a film later so there are plenty of uh there are plenty of folks out there that are, are are expecting a lot out of their movies and um and get you know frustrated and disappointed um when things don't squarely hit their their particular taste and um you know I, I as much of a killjoy as I can be sometimes when I when I get a hold of something and don't like it um aka 300 Superman returns you, you know you know the ones um, but, uh, but typically I'm looking for something good in every experience. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm, I'm psyched that you dug Parasite that much because I can't wait to see it. And, uh, since Chelsea's is going to be gone this weekend, I don't really want to see it without her, but it will give me the flexibility to kind of do my own thing. So I may end up seeing it anyway. We'll see. If she if she doesn't get upset, so I'll ask her. Uh, was that something she was interested in watching? I think she's more excited to see stuff like Jojo Rabbit, which I also want to see. Um, so I don't yeah, think she. That's open too. Yeah, I, I don't think what's well, open here, um, but I, I don't think she'll be upset when I see Parasite without her. I think uh, I think she'll be upset if I see you know a couple other things though. Anyway, but looking forward to that. Um, yeah, like I said, I haven't been watching a whole lot of stuff, but I did recently revisit uh, Lethal Weapon from 1987, the original Lethal Weapon. And, okay, uh, that, it's been a while since I've seen that movie. Yeah, and, and well, it's uh, I think all four of the Lethal Weapon movies are now on Hulu. Um, and it had been a while since I've seen it. Uh, I, you know, I'm pretty familiar with it, and over the years I've seen it, you know, a handful of times. And I like the film. Uh, you know, this particular viewing, you know, all, all the normal things that that make Lethal Weapon a great movie kind of stand out. You know, like the rapport between Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. And, you know, a lot of the set pieces are really good. Um, you know, this was back when Gary Busey was still Gary Busey before he became a parody of himself. And, un, you know, unfortunately, because of, you know, his drug addiction and stuff like that, um, you know, he's, he's really good as Mr. Joshua. Uh, I, I like I like villains that are sort of underplayed, and I think he does a really great job in the movie. Um, you know, I mean, 
you know, it's a pretty standard action vehicle from the 80s. You know, I mean, the bad guys are shipping heroin in from overseas and the cops have to get them. Um, but, uh, you know, on this, on this particular viewing, I think the thing that struck me, um, I, I really like Danny Glover and his family. And, you know, it, it's, it's not surprising because the Cosby show was the number one television show, um, while this movie was being made and even after, but, you know, it's a really positive middle-class depiction of African-American family life. Um, and, and I think, you know, some of the, some of the most delightful scenes in the movie are like when he's just kind of like at the dinner table or breakfast table with his kids, you know, when they bring him a cake, when he's in the bathtub and stuff like that. And like those scenes just bring a smile to my face and it's, you know, it's just, it's just nice to, to see, you know, cause I, I even though this is a two hander, I think he's more the main character than Mel Gibson. This is about how a crazy person is thrust into his life, how, you know, however long it is before he's retiring. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I ever, you know, I guess viewed it that way before. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, and I really enjoyed it. Well, I think definitely Mel Gibson's character, uh, he stands out because of a kind of wild and crazy he is. Um, it's not unlike, you know, I guess, uh, What's the um, what's the David O. Russell film, uh, the boxing film, The Fighter? The Fighter, yeah, yeah. Christian so, Bale. like, certainly, you know, Mark Wahlberg is the star of the film, um, but all the talk about the movie was about Christian Bale supporting supporting role character. You know, uh, so, you know, I guess you could also do that for like The Dark Knight. You know, Christian Batman's the main character, but the Joker is the one that gets all the discussion. Now, it's easy, it's harder to, to do like a softer, underplayed role like that as opposed to something that's like an extreme extreme portrayal of a character. Yeah. You tend to lose that, so. Yeah, and, and I mean, Gibson's really great. Um, and, it's, you know, it's not popular these days to enjoy angry Mel Gibson performances, but, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's certainly convincing as crazy, which is no surprise. Um, yeah, I really love like when he pulls out like the three stooges routine with like the low level drug dealers at the beginning of the movie. Um, but in the scenes where he's like contemplating suicide, um, you know, he's, you know, it's, it's very sympathetic. And even later in the film when he sort of begins interacting with Roger's family and you can see kind of a softening in him. And I like the progression of that character throughout the film. Um, but still, like, I, like I think this viewing, like, I was really focused on like the Roger Murtaugh character and how really great Danny Glover is. Um, and uh, you know, I, I've always really enjoyed "Go Spit," <laughs> which is like his catchphrase as like a clean substitute for "Go fuck yourself." <laughs> so um, I don't know. It was just you know, it was just really enjoyable and and. Uh, it was is nice to kind of sit back and uh, to be honest, I kind of put it on while I was cooking, um, and I had planned to sort of like switch it to a different movie, uh, but I ended up finishing and watching the whole thing, and uh, you know it was really just a good time. So I, I recommend going back and revisiting the first Lethal Weapon, and it's 
it takes place at Christmas. You know, it's written by Shane Black. So, you know, the dialogue is going to be sharp, and it is. Um, and it takes place at Christmas, and there's a lot of Christmas. And there's actually, I think, more Christmas in the background of this movie than there is in Die Hard, which is the following year. Uh, and we always think of Die Hard as, like, the great action Christmas movie. But I think maybe we should reevaluate that because Lethal Weapon should be up there, too. Uh, I think I think neither of these films are Christmas movies. Oh, I agree. So. But <laughs> if you want your your uh, you know Christmas periphery in the background of your action movie, I think this is a good one. Yes, they're Christmas periphery films, but they are not Christmas movies. Yes, we've had this discussion. I'm in full agreement with you. <laughs> Christmas movies should be about Christmas, not just take place at Christmas. Yeah, so. that's a cheap way. Yeah, there's um. So you said uh, the other films were all on Hulu. Do you have plans to rewatch two, three, or four? Uh, line, or well, the first one for now. Hulu auto plays. So when I was done watching Lethal Weapon one, it automatically started Lethal Weapon two, and I kind of half fell asleep and was like laying on the couch. So like I, I half watched two and three, but not four. Um. So, but I like Dream this. Watched. Dream this, watched it. Yeah. <laughs> Dream watched it. Bringing us to our main discussion. Uh, but, no, like, Lethal Weapon 2, I always really um, fixate on... I can't remember the name of the actor, but the main villain in the movie is, like, a South African diplomat who uses his diplomatic immunity to, you know, cover, like, all the criminal activities that he's, go and he's you know, involved with. And uh, every time they go to arrest him, he just says diplomatic immunity and like that's, you know i think that's how i learned what that phrase meant yeah probably me too i think um so but i always i always just like love that little phrase um, yeah aside from that i mean patsy kensen's a little you know she's a cutie pie she's pretty good in that movie <laughs> man yeah it's, i haven't uh like i haven't seen it in a while so might need a refresher to get yeah. that reference. Well, and then a Joe Pesci comes into the film in, in uh, oh, is it the second or third? It's all blending together now. The third one, I think. He's on the poster for the third one. Yeah, but I think, I think he starts in the second movie, right? Aren't they protecting Leo I don't from the South Africans? I don't know. Yeah, he's a witness in the second movie. And then in the third movie, he's just like, um, he's not, you know. He's trying to be friends. Yeah, he's like a real estate agent or something, right? Like, like he's got that little catchphrase where he's like, whatever you want, Leo gets. <laughs> so. Well, you're the one who watched it. <laughs> and then Chris Rock shows up in the fourth one, right? I don't know. I really only hey, fully watched the first one. <laughs> I'd say the first one's probably the only good, really, really good movie of the bunch, although I probably enjoy the second and the third one. The fourth one, I, f I felt at the time when it came out, I felt like it was a bit of a letdown. Um, that's the one with Jet Li as, yes. the, as one of the bad guys. So. I really like National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon Part 1. You know what's funny? I know you love that movie, and I still have never seen it. That's, uh... It's sad. Sad, right? <laughs> well, maybe if we start doing the, you know, I recommend you to watch something, you recommend something for me to watch, 
uh, thing for next year. Uh, maybe that'll be the one I force you to to partake. Uh, well, if if you make me watch Loaded Weapon One, I'm making you watch Airplane. Oof, never mind then. <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm not ready to let that joke go. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Uh, before we get into our discussion of A Nightmare on Elm Street, do you have anything else that you, you want to touch on? Uh, no. I think, um, you know, I've been watching a lot of horror films, and, you know, the percentage of horror films that are good to bad is pretty uneven. Uh, yeah. I'm pretty close to doing, um, to having amounted to a horror movie a day. I might be back by, like, a day or two, but that's something that's easy remedied with, like, you know, a handful of quickie 90 minute horror films so i should be on pace by the end of the year by the end of the month yeah but yeah a lot of a lot of bad movies i don't so, did i did i tell you that i was having time anyway so yeah did i tell you that i was having issue with my shutter account yes okay yeah well, you've been paying for it but you haven't you haven't been able to access it or something well i got that fixed so uh i have i have a broader access to horror movies on the streaming service now it, it's funny, a number of the bad horror films I saw were on Shudder. <laughs> I don't think, think it's, good one there, I don't so. think it's exclusive to Shudder, though. They have both good and bad. Yeah, but the horror selection on Shudder is astronomically better than Netflix, so there's that. Uh, that may be true, and Netflix has a bunch of original stuff, uh, you know... There are a couple of Stephen King adaptations that they had over the last year that uh, that I think I, I, I want to watch. So, what's the one with uh, Tom Jane? Is it like 1902 or something like that? I missed. No. <laughs> Although I should probably rewatch that as well. But uh, no, there's a there's a Netflix. Hulu's got the Hulu's got the good Stephen King stuff. You should watch Castle Rock. Yeah, I hear that's good. And the uh, the Kennedy time travel assassination. One with James Franco. You should watch Castle Rock, though. Well, I, I promised Chelsea that we can watch The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which she really enjoyed last year, and I refused to watch it. And I lost a bet, and so now i got to watch it. She, she forced me into a corner, and she said that you either have to watch The Haunting of Hill House or you have to watch Hocus Pocus. And there was no way in hell that I was watching Hocus Pocus. <laughs> That's so funny. I've never watched Hocus Pocus uh, either. <laughs> and, which is funny because now they're talking about doing a sequel. Disney uh, apparently is developing. They have a script. Uh, they want to get all three of the original actresses back to, uh, to return for the sequel. Well, that's definitely not the reason I subscribe to Disney+. Plus. So. <laughs> yeah. Time to cancel. Oh, do you have Verizon? Uh, my phone, yes. Uh, is it? Do you have Verizon Unlimited? Is that your plan? Um, yes. Okay. Is I have Verizon, but I don't. I have. Um, I think I have like a fifty gigabyte plan. Uh, I don't use their unlimited plan. But if you have their unlimited plan, you get Disney Plus free for a year. Well, I already paid for Disney Plus for three years. Hmm. Well, maybe you could get out of that. Maybe they'll give me a credit. Maybe they'll give me a credit. <laughs> well, uh, if you, you, maybe you could create an alternate uh, email and give that free year away to somebody. Hit, hit. <laughs> uh, we'll I, I, I was not suggesting that you give it to me. I'm just like, you know. Man, I mean, that's, that's kind of what it sounded like. 
Uh, well, I haven't already paid for Disney Plus, so if that was the case, that'd be fine. But I was actually just suggesting that you be nice and give it to somebody else. That's fine. Yeah, maybe I can, I, well, I can maybe, handle maybe the six to, bucks a month for Disney Plus. That's fine. Maybe, maybe to a listener. Uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah. That's entirely up to you, though, dude. So yeah, if you we'll can make see. that work. But All anyway, right, I'll think of a good trivia question. <laughs> there you go. Every everybody uh, brush up on your Korean cinema. There's a uh, there's some trivia coming your way. Yeah. All, All right. right. So when we get let's get to it. Yes. What's, uh, what's so, this week's episode actually about? Well, okay. this is uh, our forty sixth episode, and because one episode was twenty five movies that we, you know, were influenced by or affected us. Uh, it's really our 45th main discussion about one movie. Um, and this is 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, for those of you who have not seen it <laughs> or are not familiar with it, and I bet there's very few of you who are not familiar with it, um, this is the story of a young girl named Nancy uh, and her friends who are tormented in their nightmares by a mysterious character with uh with burned face and a red and green sweater and a glove with knives for a hand uh named fred krueger not freddy but fred krueger in this movie um and uh as as the movie progresses we find out that essentially that this guy was a child murderer and that all of their parents got together and burned him alive and killed him and so that's why he's haunting their dreams good enough Yes. Sweet. Adequate. Yeah, that's well. That's what I'm aiming for. Adequate. <laughs> First of all, let me say, when you watched this, it had the old like '80s like red New Line title card, right? Yeah, that really stood out to me. Yeah, why did they ever change that badass title card, man? That thing rocks. Uh, well, I think they just you know. They wanted to add some CG to it because that's just a title card. But when they started using the um, the rotating celluloid film strip thing, yeah. I can't quite recall when that started. It might have been early '90s, though. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, New Line. This was only their second movie, apparently, and their first movie did not do very well. It got terrible reviews. They lost money on it. It went right to video. And if a Nightmare on Elm Street was, was not, movie? what was the first movie? I don't re- I don't recall. All right, well, go ahead. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but if a Nightmare on Elm Street was not successful, uh, there was there was the danger that New Line would fold, that the company just would not be able to move forward. Uh, and so, because a Nightmare on Elm Street was so successful, uh, it got the nickname "The House That Freddy Built." So. Um, so what stood out to you on this particular viewing? Um, well, it'd been quite a while since I'd seen this film. Um, I probably saw it, I guess a lot of the films that we've been talking about lately, it's been years since I'd seen them last. What stood out to me was how boring it was. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Okay, okay. I think, okay, I think uh, generally, 
and I've, I've said this many times, but um, I've, of the two of the big slasher um, kind of franchises, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday Thirteenth being like the two that most people bring out, uh, bring up. I, I quite like Halloween, but these two for some reason have kind of persisted as the horror icons um, of like the eighties and nineties. I, I think you could call it the triple-headed monster. I think I think Michael Myers is right there. Yeah, um, but I definitely, you know, growing up, I definitely would see more people in costume as Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees on Halloween as opposed to Michael Myers. So I think the visibility of them was probably, you know, and I definitely think that Paramount and uh, New Line were more prepared to kind of whore out those characters in yeah. a lot of other different ways, whether they be like TV commercials or whatever. So they were definitely more visible, I'd say, than Michael Myers were, who was only someone you could see in a film, you know? Yeah. Well, Freddy had a TV show. Yeah. Freddy's Nightmares, yeah. Um, so I've always been more a Friday 13th person. So Nightmare on Elm Street, I always felt was a little bit, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed some of like the jokier elements of it, but I think like Freddy, I don't think he's very interesting. At least if you look at this film on its own, um, he's a character that's developed over the years into like something that forms in your mind. Um, that's a very iconic character, but I don't feel that he's that way in this first film at all. I mean, the same could be said about Jason Voorhees because, you know, everyone knows that he doesn't actually show up until the second movie as the killer. Right. Spoiler alert. And not until the third movie with the hockey mask. Yeah. I mean, this movie is 90 minutes, but it really kind of putters along, I think. You know? A lot of times, these films, um, they tend to take a jokey turn as the franchise moves along. Certainly, Nightmare on Elm Street does that. Uh, The Charles Play films are another example of that. This, uh, this film tries to play it straight horror, and well, there's some pretty cool scenes in it, I don't know, like it, it feels like it takes forever to get to them, and Freddy doesn't seem as menacing as I recalled him being. Certainly he's violent, and he's got like a, like a strong character, but as a horror film, it just doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe you can shed some light on it because it sounds like you know you probably have more positive things to say about this film than i do no well i i think i think that's interesting because uh, like i wouldn't say boring but i don't think this is a particularly uh scary movie although there are some effective jump scares in it i i think one of the things that wes craven probably does well in the movie is create sort of a surreal atmosphere in a lot of scenes but i think I think what maybe what you're not connecting with is that 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 atmosphere that he creates is not one of um, necessarily that builds a tremendous amount of tension. Um, and I, as far as Freddy goes, yeah, he he definitely gets jokier as the series progresses. And when I was watching this move, this particular movie on this this viewing I tried to separate it from the rest of the franchise and just look at it as a singular film and I I kind of I think Freddy is a little bit more menacing in this because they they don't show him fully uh, that often and when they do he's still shrouded in uh, shadows 
for the most part. Even when you see his full body from head to toe, a lot of times you can make out his face and you can kind of see like the the moisture on the the scarring from the from the burns on his face, but they sort of glisten in light, you know, because his face is still very dark. Um, in later films, they light him more fully. They spend a lot more time on the makeup effects. Um, and that's maybe why they don't do that in this movie, because perhaps the makeup wasn't quite as good as it got later. Um, this is certainly a, a more low-budget movie than, than some of the sequels. Um, so I think, you know, out of necessity, they probably shot him in darkness a lot more. Uh, but as the films progress, uh, you get to see him... Uh, a lot more, uh, clearly. Uh, I think maybe that's why all those Halloween costumes that you're, you're talking about came out. Um, and, and he becomes... Uh, God, I, I don't, I don't want to go so far as to say a stand-up comedian, but he becomes so much less threatening because, because he's always sort of got a, a one-liner. Like at every moment in, like, a lot of the sequels. Um, yeah. In this one, I think one of the things that stood out to me was that he likes to play around with the victim a lot, and there are times when he goes after both Tina at the beginning of the film and Nancy later in the film, where he's he pops out so close to them where he could literally reach out and grab them and just kill them like that. But he doesn't. It's, for him, it's more about the fear. He, you know, I think he draws the power from the fear that they have, um, you know, which is why at the end of the movie, you know, spoiler alert as usual, um, when she takes that fear away and turns her back on him is when he loses his power and she's able to defeat him. And we'll get to that later. But... Um, but a lot of times I think the tension is, is not quite as high as it could be because it's very clear that his goal is not just to murder them, it's to terrorize them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, as, a, well, as his history as a, a murderer, a child murderer, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, true crime has told me that that's, that's the reason why a lot of uh, these things happen. So the exercise of power over someone else. Yeah. Are you a big fan of Wes Craven? Like, have you have you seen a bunch of his other movies? Because as I was going through and and kind of preparing for this, you know, of what little preparation that I do, um, I, I kind of realized that there's so many Wes Craven movies that are like even some of the big ones that I have never seen. Well, I mean, when I think about it, I've definitely seen. I feel like I've seen a number a number of his films, but I wouldn't ever say that I've um, sought him out as a director. Yeah. Um, you mean music music of the hearts not in your top ten? I mean, I like Swamp Thing. <laughs> and, uh, I forgot he did that. Stupid and a Rainbow. <laughs> I guess I like the first Scream. Yeah, I, I've seen this, I've seen Scream, I've seen a couple of the later ones, like Cursed. Um, but, like, the big ones from, like, the 70s, like, uh, like The Hills Have Eyes and stuff, I've never seen. 
I like Hills of Eyes, but I don't. I don't really like Hills of Eyes Part Two. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I've seen you know thirty percent of his work, and you know, this might be my least favorite of the ones I've seen. <laughs> so that's funny. There's a rawness in like the Hills of Eyes that I quite like. Yeah. I I think there are some I think there are some nice like moments in this movie. Um, yeah, I agree. I think um, I think one of the things I think is very interesting about this movie is that um, it seems very easy to do it now, but the transition between your wake, like Nancy specifically, her waking moments and her dreaming moments, um, the transitions are quite good. I think because there is an element to it where you don't quite know where whether she's in one realm or the other. Uh, I think. Yeah, there's different layers to her dreams that that yes. include um, seeming reality when it's not really there. Mm. I mean, she's kind of a frustrating character, though, to follow, though, because she's... I mean, I guess maybe it's because, as the audience, we know more information than she does, but it seems like it takes way too long for her and the other characters in the film to kind of accept what's happening. Um, well, you know, it's funny... Yeah, since it's since the blob guy. was our last episode, um, I kept finding what what I and maybe I'm stretching here, but I kept finding like some some parallels to the blob as far as like, um, you know, uh, Freddy essentially being, you know, like the the sins of a, of one generation being revisited on the next, and the fact that like all the adults. Uh, including law enforcement, are really not of any help to them and think they're either crazy or pranking. Um, you know, so I, I, I thought that that was, uh, that was an interesting thing to kind of, like, find some parallels between those two movies. Yeah. Yeah, Hoodlum's locked up for not doing anything. Yep. <laughs> um, the, the opening scene of this movie... Um, not the credit sequence. I mean, the credit sequence at the beginning essentially is, uh, I mentioned this earlier before we started, um, you know, it's basically like a, a montage of like Freddy, like suiting up, <laughs> which I love. Um, but like the, the yeah, um, the, 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 the real opening scene essentially is like Tina's dream, um, and I, I like the choice that we're starting with a different character besides Nancy. Um, Tina's an important character. Um, and her, even after her death, her character sort of looms large for Nancy. And she keeps seeing visions of Tina in her body bag and stuff like that. Um, but it, by starting with Tina, it sort of allows us to get to know uh, Nancy, who is our heroine, before we're asked to actually care about her and fear for her life. Um, and, uh, the actress who plays Tina, Amanda Wiss, or Weiss, I don't know how you pronounce it, um, I love her, she's, she's in one of my favorite 80s comedies, Better Off Dead, as John Cusack's ex-girlfriend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, like, the, the first shot of her against, like, that stark white background, um, I, I think immediately starts the film off with, like, a little bit of, like, a surreal touch, um, because it almost looks like it almost looks like it's an unfinished special effect. Like the back is almost like uh, a projected background. So there's like, 
there's like a weird separation between her and the background, which I, I thought was, was kind of a cool effect. Um, and we're sort of introduced to Freddy in little pieces. So you've got like the fingernails on the chalkboard effect as he sort of drags his glove over the metal poles and the handrails of the boiler room. Um, and when you do see him, you see basically like only like, like a quarter of his face. And, and again, like I said, there's a lot, a lot of shadow. Um, the Fre that iconic Freddy laugh kicks in. Um, and, uh, like, there's a weird effect, like, once we get, like, out of the boiler room setting, um, like, there's a shot of Tina, like, running away from Freddy, but she's not really moving. It's, like, a weird effect, like, she's almost, like, on an escalator. You know like what I mean? Like a treadmill kind of... Yeah, like a, like a treadmill type thing, but, like, she, so she looks like she's running fast, but she doesn't look like the background's moving against her. Um, and then at the very end of the scene, when she's like in front of the actual boiler with the fire behind her, I don't know. I don't know how they did it because like, I, I actually rewound it and watched it twice, but the jump scare is, um, is very effective there. I thought, did you, did you really? kind of notice uh, that? No, I mean, cause I mean, like you said, Freddie kind of plays with them. So you just kind of expect them just to pop out. And I guess 35 years on, and we've watched so many horror films since Nightmare on Elm Street has come up that like those tropes are so predictable. Um, going, especially going back to watching something where um, it probably would have been fresher to an audience at the time. Yeah, that's true. I, like that particular shot, though, um, where because it's it's like a it's like a medium long shot. So like you're basically getting like a little bit below her like thigh, like like mid thigh and up. So you don't see like below her knees, but Freddie pops up so quick that I almost feel like it had to be like a built set where they kind of like springboard him up like over top of her because there's no cut and he really like like in an instant like pops up out of nowhere so i i thought it was an effective shot i think like for scares i mean this is jumping around a bit but there's the scene when uh i guess freddie attacks her nancy in her room and he jumps out of the uh the mirror yeah which is which is a really good effect that's uh i guess kind of recreated in um serpent under rainbow which which i like quite a bit i don't another i was craven film i've seen okay um there's a moment like that that's quite good. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this movie isn't awful. <laughs> you know, I'm just <laughs> putting, out, putting out the bits I did enjoy. So. Yeah. See, I, I mean, I, cinematically, I think he does a lot of different things, and, and maybe it's one of those things where he's just trying a little bit of everything, and maybe that's why it doesn't necessarily work for you um, as well. But, you know, like, uh, he, he does, like, some very almost overexposed, blown out, like, ethereal imagery of, like, the kids jumping rope singing the Freddy song. Um, yeah, well, those are the bookended scenes, too, so... Well, that, that happens after Tina's dream, before we see them rolling up to school the next morning. And it, it like, I, I, and I think it's well executed. Like, you get the really, like, blown out ethereal shot of them, and the camera just pans over... And then it, it 
it basically transitions into like a normal looking day as the car comes up. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, they do, they do some things like, I mean, just something simple, like, uh, after a couple scenes, they fade out to uh, fade to black and then fade in, which is really kind of like the cinematic equivalent of like falling asleep and waking up because there's like a time difference. There's a time jump. Um, you know, so I, I think that that that's used pretty effectively in a couple of places as well. Um, yeah, the rotating sets, uh, when like when Tina is actually killed, um, as Rod watches in the room and she sort of is like dragged up the, up the wall onto the ceiling. And then later when Glenn is killed, the way the, I, I guess the, the, the blood shoots up to the ceiling and runs down the walls. They, they, they accomplish that do, using like a rotating room. Um, very similar to like, you know, what was used to allow Fred Astaire to like dance on the ceiling in Royal Wedding. Um, Popping out some classic movie knowledge there, baby. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, he's he's using a lot of different techniques, um, and and I, you know, I for the most part, I think it's fairly effective. I do, I agree with you that it does drag in some spots, and I think some of the scenes that are supposed to be dramatic probably don't achieve their intended effect because of either a little bit of overacting on the part of either uh, Heather... Nancy's mother. Yeah, well, yeah. Nancy's mother. Um, the, the actress who plays Nancy's mother, um, who I, I don't find... I don't think she's bad, but I don't think she... I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I connect with her at all. Um, I mean, you just, you just assume she's like that because he's drunk. Well, yeah, it's funny because... Um, I think I had a, a memory of her basically just being a lush and being drunk the whole movie, but it's not until I guess it's Rod's funeral when she tells her parents that it was a guy in a red and green sweater with claws for hands who killed Rod um, that her mom starts to like freak out and starts to unravel. Well, I mean, the first time you see her, it's like... Uh... She's, uh, I guess it's after Tina gets killed, she's putting alcohol, when you first see her, she's putting alcohol into her coffee cup in the morning. Okay. And then she hides, like, the bottle behind um, behind her. And yeah. Nancy goes to take a sip of coffee, but she pulls the cup away from her. Oh, okay. Because it has alcohol in it. So. I, I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure I caught that, actually. That's good. Um, one of my favorite non-joke jokes in the movie is later when Nancy wants to sneak out of the house to go and meet Glenn, who is, you know, we haven't talked about Johnny Depp, but we'll get to that. Um, and <laughs> she opens up her bedroom door and her mother's in the hallway just, like, downing a bottle. Just, like, almost like she's, like, she pulls the bottle out of, like, I guess her, her, yeah, her favorite hiding spot, which is like in between some towels or sheets or something. It's like a like a chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> but she's basically just you know in the hallway, you know, with a bottle, just kind of standing there guard. <laughs> it makes me laugh every time. Yeah, it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because that scene happens probably around the midway point of the movie. Yeah. So. um... 
Oh no, that's later than that. That's like the last night. That's like right before Johnny Depp bites the dust. Nah, because that's when Johnny Depp comes in and he falls asleep after Nancy tries to... She asks him to stay awake. So that's quite a bit earlier. Because, I mean, Not the Johnny one I'm Depp thinking doesn't... about. The one I'm thinking about is, is after they put bars on all the windows and doors so that he can't get in and she can't get out. She has to sneak out through the front door and she tries to go out her into the hallway and her mom is standing there. Okay. It's, it's the last night. Alright. You know, because she goes downstairs and her mother just half passed out on the, on the recliner. Yeah, and she tries to get out the door and her mother's like, it's locked and I don't have the key. And she, you know, <laughs> Nancy goes crazy. Um, okay, so let's, let's talk about uh, Johnny Depp. <laughs> well, there's not a whole lot to say about Johnny Depp, I guess, other than the fact that this is like his first big movie. Um, yeah. Much he, like uh, Steve McQueen. He, much like Steve McQueen, that's true. I think uh, I, I think Johnny Depp probably uh, got more out of being in this movie than Steve McQueen did for being in The Blob. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street's had a, a bit more of a popular longevity, I guess, than The Blob has. The Blob's more of a cult movie, and Nightmare on Elm Street's really like a mainstream horror film. I like that Lynn Shea pops up as the teacher. <laughs> yeah. And in typical horror movie fashion, you know, like the classroom lecture is sort of linked philosophically with, you know, the horror film's theme or the central conflict. You know, I did, like, um, I did like the oratory by that surfer, surfer bro. <laughs> uh, of Julius Caesar. Yeah. He turns into a much better thespian once the dream, once the dream world takes over. Um, that uh, that scene where she wanders through the hallway actually is, is pretty cool. They do some pretty interesting stuff with uh, Tina's body in the body bag. Yeah, it's 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 I guess it's a pretty like standard, you know, horror screenwriting tool, you know, to to do this. But like, you know, Nancy's parents are divorced. Her father's sort of, maybe not an absentee father, but he's not in the home. Her mom is, I guess, an alcoholic. You know, I, I, I I'm, you know, regardless of whether it's because of the events of the film or because she's just a drinker in general, which I guess is what we're led to believe. Um, so Nancy can't really depend on the the adult figures in her life. So you know, by design in the movie. You know, she's much more close-knit with her friends, and they're her support structure. And then, of course, you know, one at a time, they're all taken away from her until she is alone at the end. And uh, I, like, I like the fact that Tina continues to haunt her throughout the film. And whether it's Freddy using that or her psyche or whatever, um, you know, I think, I think it's, it's an important point that she's, she's losing, the, you know, all the important people around her, I guess. Wow. Something I think that's kind of interesting um, for that actually I like about the film is like there are multiple times when you see Nancy go to sleep, but you don't see what she sees. Uh, we're stuck in the real world while she is sleeping and you know, presumably fighting Freddy. Um, and I think that does a lot more interesting stuff to reveal, I guess, like the world that Freddy Krueger inhabits. 
like the the, the things that happen during the sleep uh, the sleep study. Um, yeah, with uh, Charles Fleischer. Yeah, so like when she goes to sleep and she's you know and Kara and Freddie, she gets to a fight. She has you know, she wakes up with cuts on her arms. I think um, staple. Uh, you know, I guess staking that scene in the real world actually uh, was a very good choice, as opposed to just jumping into the dream world every time some she goes to sleep. Yeah, I, well, I think that that strengthens, you know, like what's happening around her. The the fact that the adults are trying to find like these simple reasons and won't believe her about what's happening, um, you know, but that science can't really explain it. Uh, and then when she pulls Freddie's hat out of that, like that's that's when her mom like really starts to like completely like yeah, completely go downhill. It's like uh, you know they go down. That's when she explains like who Freddy Krueger was, and like she just kept like the the bladed glove as like a memento. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always thought that was weird. Like you know, you're just keeping the proof that you murdered somebody <laughs> as as like a keepsake. You know, why would she have that? Why wouldn't they throw that in a river or something? <laughs> so, do you, so, like, and she keeps it in, like, this, like, yeah, in, like, this boiler that, like, obviously they don't use. In the furnace, yeah. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it's 1984, so it was pretty common for for homes to have, like, uh, like a, a larger furnace like that to heat instead of, like, you know, what, what most places, what most people have like like now a gas powered furnace mm, i guess so <laughs> never had that in my home i guess but yeah i think uh something i that kind of marks this as an 80s film is i was one of the things i did like about the movies like looking around in, in these homes there's always these weird knickknacks and stuff hanging on the walls like she has like bunnies like in her bathroom sink or something yeah there's like weird blankets and flags hanging and it looks like TGI Fridays. It's <laughs> like weird shit on the walls. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I like is that it's pretty clear that Wes Craven is a fan of, uh, of other low budget horror. Um, uh, and I, I mean, I guess, I guess mainstream horror really didn't, didn't really exist that much. I mean, aside from like the exorcist and Rosemary's baby and stuff like that, like Hollywood wasn't making like big budget horror movies at this time. So like a lot of the, a lot of the good horror movies were being done, you know, as, as independent films on the cheap with independent producers and stuff. And, you know, like at one point Nancy's watching evil dead on TV. Yep. And black and white too. Uh, yeah. And, um, and the scene where when they're at Tina's house, and before Tina gets killed, when you see Nancy in a different bedroom and Freddie kind of is trying to push through the walls, that really reminded me a lot of um, that iconic shot in Phantasm with the tall man over the bed. Mm -hmm. um, so like. Like, I, I like that he's sort of, like, including some touches, you know, callbacks to other films that he admires, so. Um, yeah, I mean, um, the independent horror community, even to this day, I feel like it's, I don't want to say small, but they everyone knows each other, I'm sure. Yeah. I think when you're a director like that, especially during that period, where, you know, directors like Sam Raimi, Wes Craven, and, you know, they're all 
to kind of honing their craft on this low budget stuff, you know, you can easily appreciate um, you know, the influences, you know, their shared influences and the influences they've had on each other. Not unlike saying, I, I feel like it's similar to animators, um, like say like the Pixar team or the people who work on Cartoon Network shows. A lot of them are, you know, collaborative like friends, collaborative um, partners. And I think that uh, it kind of helped each of them kind of hone their style, especially within the horror films, if they stuck, if they stuck with that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, um, I like the progression in the film where at the beginning of the film, it's pretty clear that these kids are only in danger while they're sleeping. Um, and there, there is a measure of security, uh, when they're awake and gradually through the film, little by little, uh, that is, that is removed. And the, the, you know, the line between reality and the dream world becomes blurred, uh, you know, starting with, I don't know if it's starting with, but like I specifically, I can think of Rod's death and, the telephone call from Freddie where the, uh, you know, she, she's, a, she's in the real world, but she gets a call from Freddie and then she pulls the phone out of the wall and, and then the phone rings again. And then when she picks it up, like the bottom of the phone is like Freddie's mouth and the tongue comes out and everything. Um, so I mean, you know, ultimately I guess I chalked it up to like, as I was watching it, like hallucinations from sleep deprivation, <laughs> <laughs> well, she's also like at that point probably the most terrified she's been. Yeah. So his ability to kind of reach through it's probably strengthened. The rules aren't exactly clearly defined, so as it should be when you're talking about a dream world. Yes. Um. Uh, can, can we talk about how she becomes like a Kevin McAllister, <laughs> like in in her house and. <laughs> Like Freddy Krueger turns into like a bumbling like stooge. I, I I definitely wrote down that this is a possible inspiration for Home Alone. <laughs> Chris Columbus probably saw this movie and was like, "This would be better if Freddy Krueger was two bumbling thieves, and if if Nancy Nancy was a nine year old kid." And let's set him on fire. Just not whole. Just not whole body. <laughs> Yeah, I I think it, it was like super. It was super weird when all of a sudden she just pops up with a book that's like uh, I can't remember what it was called. It was like booby traps and um, Glenn calls her out on it. He's like, "What are you doing?" And she's just like, "I'm a." Sur-, she says something like, "I'm a survivor. Or I'm a survivalist. Or yeah. I'm, into I'm, sur- into <laughs> I'm into surviving. I'm into survival." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I was like, I I didn't remember like. Freddy Krueger falls downstairs a lot, like in that, and he does it like three times or something. Yeah, he's a bit and, clumsy. You know, <laughs> yeah, he's like, "Oh man, I can't do what I want in the dream world in the real world." I guess you no know, gravity. <laughs> I haven't had this in a while. I I think it's I think it's interesting that Glenn is the one like that has, I guess the the advice that that. Nancy needs in order to defeat Freddy. Like in the beginning of the film, when he's talking to Tina, he's like, you know, in the middle of your dream, you just say, 
this is a dream. It isn't real. And then, you know, you'll wake yourself up and, you know, it works for me. And, you know, that's, that's what Nancy, you know, begins to use the, at the early part of the film. And then later during the scene where she has the book on the booby traps, he's talking about, um, oh God, what is it? He's talking about the Balinese way of dreaming and dream skills um, and how, you know, that they take the power away from, from the nightmare and turn their back on it, which is essentially exactly what she does later in the film in order to win. Yeah, I thought he was supposed to be a jock. Like, she calls him a jock, and she, and, like, but he's got all this, like, soulful knowledge. <laughs> well, like he, he knows, like, prisoner of Zenda. He does, like, he does wear a three-quarter cutoff football jersey at one point. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so you, you can, so you can see that eight, those six-pack. <laughs> yeah. Right out of bosom buddies. <laughs> I actually like the scene where, like, Rod shows up at Tina's house. Um, and they're not sure what's going on, and they're all, like, hiding behind Johnny Depp, who is all of, like, 120 pounds, probably. <laughs> and then after Rod tackles him, he says to Tina something like, did you see how scared he was? And and uh, Johnny Depp gives one of those, like, like infantile, like, did you see how scared he was? He still wasn't as cool. <laughs> He's such a baby in this movie, my God. What about the ending of this movie? Wes Craven notoriously did not like the ending of this movie, uh, where after Nancy vanquishes Freddy, um, that we find out that uh, that it you know essentially, I guess you could say it's still a dream at the end of the movie. Like you, you could say the whole movie is is one dream that never ends, basically. Um, and then you could almost argue whose dream is it? Is it her dream or is it her mother's dream? Um, but when they cut a roll away in like the in the convertible and it's got the red and green top, and then Freddie grabs her mother through the window, you know, there's there's no way to know at that point, like like who. Well, I, I feel like it's uh, the mother's dream. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's kind of what I feel as well. But I mean, you know, uh, Nancy comes back in a later film, doesn't she? In like she's at least maybe, in the third one. Third or fourth one. Yeah, the second one doesn't have any of the characters. Someone where, the where there's like the like the psych ward or something. Yeah. The hospital. Yeah, she um, it, the one with um, Patricia Arquette, right? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that movie in a long time either. So is it Patricia Arquette? Not, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't think so. I hope I'm not wrong there. Uh, well, so I mean. The idea, I mean, Freddie hasn't been defeated, I guess, but Nancy hasn't been killed either, so. Uh, we don't, I mean, looking at the film as just a solo film, it's very unclear, so. Yeah, well, I, I don't think at the time that they had any anticipation that it would be such a huge hit and that they would do however many, whether seven, eight, nine sequels to it or whatever. Um, so I, I think, I think, yeah, the ending of this movie is just, like, a cool ending for them to have. Like, it's just one more, like, twist for you. Um, and I don't think they're, that they were actually intending to set anything up for, for a future installment. Um, That's right. But, yeah. But they, those, install, those sequels came out super fast after this movie was a hit, though. Well, I, you know, like, I haven't seen the second one in a really long time. But I, I don't remember liking the second one. 
And I don't remember it having really much anything to do with this one. Aside from Freddy being in it. But. Isn't it like, the second one is like, someone moves into that house? Or something, right? Like Nancy's house, old house. I might be confused that with another movie. I, I don't know. I don't know. We yeah, should, like I said, we should know, really know this street. stuff before we actually start a podcast. <laughs> now, who needs it? <laughs> that would take uh, the fun away, though. Yeah. Yeah, like the dead air in our moments of confusion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I said earlier I wasn't really into this movie, this viewing. Um, how, like, what was your, uh, your feelings after the movie was done? after your screening for the podcast? Uh, I mean, I, I like the film. I don't love it. It's not one of my favorite horror movies, but generally, I like it. I admire, like, a lot of the things that they're trying to do in this movie. I think it strikes into the core of what really scares us in, in many ways, which is is our mind. Um, I think the difference between Freddy and Jason Voorhees, you know, for example, is... That, you know, Jason Voorhees, you know, quote unquote in the movie world, is a, is a real physical dude that you can run away from. And if you weren't at Crystal Lake, and even if you are, and you get away from Jason, and you drive to Wisconsin, you're going to be safe. But when, when it comes to Freddy, it's inevitable that he is going to get you, because you can't drive away, you can't escape him. You know, eventually you're going to go to sleep. And this is about, like, the things that make us the most vulnerable. You know, being asleep. You know, that iconic shot of Nancy in the bathtub where the glove comes up out of the water. Like, being in the bathtub naked, you're pretty vulnerable. And, like, I think that's that's something that really puts people on edge. You know, I think that's why that particular scene's very effective. Um... I think that's why Freddy's an effective, you know, modern movie monster, you know, because uh, you, you can't, I mean, you can run away from him in your dream, but he, you know, he can change your reality, essentially. He alters, you know, your perception of things. You know, he gets into your mind. Um, and, you know, like, you know, it's, it was funny because I was thinking of The Matrix while I was watching this as well. You know, like the scene where where Morpheus tells Neo that if you if you die in the Matrix, you die in the real world because your mind makes it real. And I was thinking that that logic applies to what, what happens in a Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Running on feelings and stuff too. <laughs> so, so I mean, I, you know, I I I like this, and I like Freddy in this more than I like the stand-up comedian jokester that that you get in a lot of the later films. And even though there are a couple of there are a couple shots where he does something that's kind of cartoonish, you know, like when his arms go really long and extended in the in the alleyway, mm-hmm. um, some shadow, yeah, still. And I, I I tend to be taken out of the movie that like with that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I think I think the Nightmare on Elm Street series wants you to have a good time. And I don't think they're just straight horror. I mean, I, I think, you know, especially once you get to four, five, six in that range, like, they are horror comedies. 
But I don't know. I, I, I think what they did to this character and taking him from like a straight horror monster and sort of making him almost a parody of himself later on is something that I don't necessarily appreciate as a fan. Yeah. I mean, people love, love the franchise, but like I said earlier, the development of that character throughout the years has kind of created like an indelible image of who Freddy Krueger is. Unfortunately, it's not who he is from this first movie anymore. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sorry, man, that you did not um, really have a good time <laughs> watching this. Since th- uh, that's this okay. Was... I mean, like it's it's always worth it to revisit something you've seen years and years ago. Yeah. Um. You you know you shouldn't have to apologize. I think it, it makes for an interesting discussion. You know, it's better not to agree on films all the time. So. Yeah, of course, but that doesn't matter. I you know I still I still want you to enjoy it. I still care about what you think Cesar. Alright. If you if you uh um do you think this movie holds up as uh one of the great eighties horror films? Uh, I do. I I mean I I think it holds up as one of the great eighties horror movies because of the iconography of Freddy and, and the franchise that it spawned. Uh I think if you look at this movie by itself as a singular film um, I still think it's, I still think it's an interesting film. Um, you know, it was, I, I mean, obviously Friday the 13th was before this, but it's, it's really like Friday the 13th was not a huge blockbuster. It was a hit, but Nightmare on Elm Street was, was kind of a, I mean, it wasn't just a hit. It was a mega hit in 1984. It was, it was a big movie. Um, and I think the, the cultural impact sort of makes it, you know, continues to make it significant to this day. Yeah. I, maybe, maybe that's why I liked Friday the 13th a little bit better. Yeah. You know, I, I do think that like, there's a less reliance on visual effects in those movies. Um, and generally I've always found that a lot of new line cinema films, especially like genre films, whether they're action or. Uh, sci-fi or, or horror tend to try to use a lot of visual effects to win people over. Yeah, and I think the practicality of the Friday Thirteenth films, you know, is probably what puts that um, ahead of Nightmare for me. Okay. When I, you know, I didn't realize it till just now, but yeah, a lot of new line cinema films tend to really promote, you know, at what would have been at the time cutting edge visual effects and. You know, the deaths, especially like Nancy's and uh, um, a couple of the other Freddy moments, those do tend to stand out. Uh, and I didn't watch a trailer for this movie before, um, so I'm not sure what they embellished for uh, promotional uh, means. But yeah, like I guess that's that's pretty common for, for that production house. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I for me, there's just a, there's a bunch of visuals that stick out, um, you know, of of Freddy and like him coming out of the ceiling and um, the the mother's uh, <laughs> the mother's skeleton like kind of falling into oblivion through the bed and um, you know I, I you know and that it has that iconic line in it whatever you do don't fall asleep what she tells Glenn which was in like all the trailers that's basically what they sold the movie on and uh, 
you know, I, I do remember, you know, when this movie came out, I didn't see this in the theater originally. I think I saw this on video, uh, at, at least four or five years afterwards. But, uh, I do remember people kind of just walking around, you know, whether it be on Halloween or, or whatever, and just saying, Hey, don't fall asleep. So like that became part of like the pop culture lexicon as well, you know, just like Freddie. Um, so, you know, I mean, I don't know. I like it. I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> I, I don't think it's great, but I think it's good. I think it's a solid effort. I, and, uh, you know, I yeah, think that's fine. Whatever. Yeah. It was better than Zombieland too. Uh, I still haven't seen it yet. I may see it this weekend. Okay. We can Go certainly compare it. notes later on, but uh, to be yeah. honest, I think Zombieland is a is a real pleasant film. I, I liked it, but I'm not sure it needed a sequel, and I'm not sure I wanted a sequel. <laughs> I think it definitely didn't need a sequel. That's my opinion. <laughs> well, that's what it sounds like, you know, based on not just yours, but some other people's opinions that I've heard as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll still give it a shot. Check it out. But, uh, but yeah, the trailer doesn't really do anything for me either. Like, I, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure they had a reason to revisit these characters. Yeah, but hey, if they can do, you know, 175 Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, I guess they can do two Zombielands. Yeah, I guess so. Just something until Venom 2, I guess. Urban <laughs> Fleischer. <laughs> yes! Venom 2. No thanks. There we so, go. do you have any uh, final thoughts about the movie? Or maybe we just kind of tackled that already. Yeah, I think we did. I, you know, I'm good to move on. I, you know, I, I wish everybody a, a happy and safe Halloween. Are you doing anything special? Uh, you know, I don't have anything planned yet, but I do inexplicably have Halloween off this year. So I'm going to find something to do. I don't remember the last time I ever had Halloween off. Um, it's probably been, I mean, I'm sure I took one off at Suncoast at some point, but you know, it's I mean, been more than ten years for me. So it's been I'm it's been at least ten or fifteen years, um, and I'm not getting it off. You know, I, I work nights. You know, for UPS, so um, I'm not getting it off this year. But I think is it next year? Halloween falls on a Saturday, so I'll I be off know. next year. Yeah, so. I mean, I certainly haven't looked that far ahead. <laughs> well, um, so while I, are, you're not dressing up, are you? Uh, I don't know. We'll see. Is, um, I guess this will be our last episode before Halloween though, huh? Unfortunately, but that doesn't mean you can't, you can't pick a horror movie for the next episode. All right. Well, I have to consider. Yes. November though, huh? Hmm. Be, be prepared. I'm going to be picking probably crime and noir movies for, for November. Okay. I, in fact, I just got, um, I'll do something that's the opposite. There you go. Light-hearted comedies. Yeah, <laughs> do do movies like... With, uh, movies with talking animals. <laughs> Any which way but loose. <laughs> Wait, does that, monk, does that orangutan talk in that movie? <laughs> no, but it just popped in my head. Um, I was but, like, man, maybe I need to sit down with that. So. Yeah. So I, I just got a mini haul from uh, Amazon because I had to, I had to buy an air mattress... Because uh, we're going to be having some company, you know, over the next few months as we prepare for uh, for the big day. Um, but uh, I had a couple other things in my cart that I forgot about, and I just like cleared the cart and ordered everything. And so I got a couple of uh, couple of Blu-rays and a book 
uh, that were all noir related. So be, I'm ready to go for for November. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Man. Well, I'm gonna count on you to be super prepared for them. I'll just, as always, watch the film only. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, all right. Well, hey, uh, where can people find you on the internet, sir? Um, as always, you can find me at filmsmash.com or on Twitter at Junior Beho. And you can you can find me on Twitter at Setting the Frame. And please make sure that you join our Facebook uh, discussion group, Celluloid Jelly. Uh, you can find the link in the show notes. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Yep. Thanks, guys. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.